Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This one featuring James Cleverly, newly elevated Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party in Theresa May's recent reshuffle. James was a superb guest. He's so naturally funny um, that it was one of the more raucous nights that we've had um, down at the political party. He was brilliant, but also you get that f- wonderful political insight, really from uh, very close now to the heart of the Tory party and, and what the assessment of the, the, the problems with the current government are. And uh, I've heard James say it in other interviews, we cover it here, about the need for the Conservatives to be maybe a bit more emotional uh, and and own some of their positives more. It's a, it's a wide-ranging interview. James is really funny throughout, so it was a great night. Uh, but there are so many things that he says that are very much of their time. And he feels like a politician very much of the time. He's, he's more informal, perhaps, than a lot of his uh, rising star colleagues. Uh, he feels different to a lot of Conservatives. He is more irreverent uh, and more outspoken. Uh, but that doesn't detract at all um, from his obvious intelligence and political judgment. So it, he was, in many ways... Uh, the perfect guest. I know he's listened to the podcast for a long time as well, so it's uh, it's always a pleasure to have people on that get what the show is and enjoy it. But he was great, and and the hour absolutely flew by. Um, in fact, I think it's the quickest, or it felt the quickest, um, probably of all the interviews I've done. He really is great company, uh, and I hope you enjoy this uh, interview that is very funny, um, but also does really give uh, a sense of where the Tories need to head uh, if they really want to win the next election. Uh, so do enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Henry Bolton today has had to, uh, current leader of UKIP, has had to apologise for lying on his CV. Uh, apparently, <laughs> this is absolutely, this, this broke this afternoon. He, um, he apparently claimed that he got a BA from Sandhurst. and has had to admit that he hasn't got a BA from Sandhurst. Because Santas don't do BAs. <laughs> There's absolutely no chance. No matter how hard you study at Sandhurst, you'll never get one. He's also had to apologise for claiming that he had a BA from City and Guilds. And it turns out City and Guilds don't do BAs. <laughs> he's so desperate to get a BA, he's joined the A-team and has started getting on planes. Uh, that's how sad he is. Uh, he, blamed, he blamed his CV cock-up on a junior member of staff. Uh, his girlfriend blamed Meg- Meghan Markle uh, for <laughs> watering down the DNA of the CV. Uh, it also claims on his CV that it was a Lib Dem, and he was forced to admit with a heavy heart that that bit was actually true. Uh, he apologised for bringing shame on his family and humiliating his ex-wife. Uh, Joe Marnie is currently, according to her mother, Joe Marnie, of course, is the so-called model. Um, from what I can gather from... from what I can gather from... Um, extensive internet searches that my friends have done. Uh, it's not a great deal of evidence of an employment history. They seem to be sort of self-taken shots. Um, 
Some of them quite good, according to my mate. Uh, he says she's actually quite attractive and the lighting's good. In... Anyway, I haven't seen these pictures. But uh, apparently a, a member of UKIP's NEC... Uh, I mean, the fact they've even got one, but apparently they've got an NEC uh, that, is, that is vaguely professional, has said, well, Henry was once an officer. Uh, officers are meant to do the decent thing and get a revolver and a bottle of gin. Uh, and then he's added, not literally... I don't think in any other party would you have to make that clear. <laughs> just want to make it absolutely clear we don't mean shoot himself. I mean, the early bird catches the worm. I mean, not literally. I get up at 11. Uh, Farage himself, this is Farage, he's obviously constantly on the brink of becoming a UKIP leader again. Mainly because he's fucking bored. And he came out, you might have seen him on the right stuff a few weeks ago. Um, those of you who have proper jobs won't have seen this, of course, but <laughs> I catch every episode if I'm up that early. And uh, he said, in a, I couldn't believe I watched it live. And he said, you know what? I'm starting to reach the conclusion that we should have a second referendum on the European Union. And you just think, I'm reaching the conclusion that it's probably about time of year that you have to pay your tax bill. <laughs> and he's realised he needs some work. And he's just like, what? He's just, if you'd really treasured something, why put it at risk? That was the problem we, those of us who were, Remain had with David Cameron. Because if you want to stay in the EU, don't put it at risk. What is Farage? He just loves the fight. He's like one of those gangsters who always tempted into doing one more job. <laughs> Look, Boris, one more job. Look, all you've got to do is drive the bus. <laughs> Don't even have to get your hands dirty. Um, it's like those idiots on Bullseye that get shitloads of money and then go, we're going to gamble. No, just go home now, you idiot. You've won. Why do you want another fight? I mean, it is just attention. It, Farage is the political equivalent of one of those mates you bump into in the street and goes, great to see you. Let's go for a beer. You go, I can't, I can't go for a beer. I've got to put the kids to bed. Great idea. I'll get the first ones in. You put them to bed. I'll see you at half nine. No, I can't. I, I can't leave the house. Great idea. House party. I'll turn up at ten. Just fucking go home. It's gonna, in two years' time, Farage will be there just going, please, somebody play with me. <laughs> I can do five keepy uppies. He doesn't even touch the floor. Look at that. But it's good fun. Uh, his friend, uh, Donald Trump, uh, has had his, a clean bill of health. Uh, apparently, he's 17 stone. Uh, which, I, I took, I'm 17 stone. <laughs> Fuck every single one of you. I genuinely thought, you fucking rotters. I honestly thought... You know, this is the saddest thing. I don't often do personal stuff. When I thought of that this afternoon, I thought, I'm going to tell them that, and they're going to be shocked. And it turns out you were shocked in the wrong direction. And she looked quite good on it, mate. <laughs> Fuck me. I thought you were going to go, there's no... I thought there was going to be an... I actually thought to myself, there'll be an audible intake of breath. <laughs> Fucking hell. I don't look that... Do I? <laughs> I thought, you know what? I thought, oh, I don't, I'm not even going into this, but fuck me. Right, okay, let's not go hostile. Let's keep it friendly. He's 17 stone. And, uh, yeah, same, same weight as me, would you believe? In fact, he's... T- <laughs> oh, God. I can't believe it. I've been doing this for nearly... What, what? Fucking hell. I think this is the fifth anniversary of the show. It's turned into a nightmare. It shows, yeah. I have a gateau for everyone I've done. <laughs> Jesus.
Jesus Christ. But his diet consists mainly of Big Macs and... Uh, I mean, I can't... I can't, <laughs> can't say anything about this now without it... Looking that I've basically got the same lifestyle of him. Um, but he's on, he's on certain medications, on four types of medication, including stuff to keep his hair nice and thick. And, no, no, right. and, um, I've always had a high forehead, so fuck yourselves. Um, but he's on, a, he's on a... I looked up, because you know in America, if you've ever been to America, when they put these adverts on telly, they have to tell you what the side effects are. So it's the ibuprofen, may cause drowsiness and suicidal thoughts. Um, so it's always quite bleak. So I thought, I'll oh, look up the side effects of some of the stuff that he's on. The first one I researched, this is incredible, and this is all true, he's on a, he's on a uh, sleep tablet, um, a sedative called Ambien. Uh, and the first thing it says is there may be dangerous side effects. Well, fair amount of evidence to suggest that's true. The first thing it says is do not operate heavy machinery or do anything that requires you to be alert. <laughs> Might run the fucking world. This, this, I mean, this, I could not, you're going to think I'm making this up. I will, I will, unlike the government, publish my research. It says it can cause you to eat, phone people or have sex with no recollection. <laughs> it's fucking... I mean, it should, be called, it should be called alibi, not ambient. This is incredible. <laughs> He's probably fine, the poor bloke. He's just having some side effects from his medication. Nah. <laughs> He's a piece of shit. Uh, of course, you may have seen his interview uh, with Piers Morgan, which was on Sunday at 10 o'clock. Piers Morgan uh, interviewed Donald Trump. In, what? And now Piers Morgan claims he got uh, an apology out of him. But anyone who's seen it, I don't think he apologises. What he says is... I'm, I'm happy to apologise if that's what you want me to do. And then Piers Morgan doesn't say, that is what I want you to do. <laughs> the interview just moves on. So all we've got is, I'm happy. I mean, I, don't, I will, if you want me to. But I can't, I can't hear anyone saying that they do. <laughs> I heard nothing. So I'm not going to... I wouldn't apologise if you didn't want me to, because that would be more rude. So. <laughs> and then we're getting told this is an apology. He also said, and this was a, there's a heck of a caveat, when, when Piers Morgan says to him, uh, but do you know Britain, Britain first, who you retweeted, are, are fascists, they're racists. And Trump says, do you know, Piers, I am often the least racist person in the room. <laughs> often. <laughs> but not always. <laughs> i got to tell you, if my food's late, I really go. But I really... <laughs> Michael Gove apparently wants to wipe out all the grey squirrels in, uh, in the UK because they eat away at trees. Uh, Small, grey, and described as the lowest of the vermin. Gove is still environment secretary. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the, the ancient mummy that's been uh, discovered in Basel, uh, which apparently is related to Boris Johnson? It's his seven times removed great-grandmother. Uh, and they've done a DNA test and found that there's no heart, no brain in a history of syphilis. Um, no news on the mummy. Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe we'll get more, uh, more insights uh, on the... I've, I've been told, by the way, that when I introduce my guests, I always say I've wanted to interview this person for a long time. And it's always true. Um, so I will say that later, but I just had to get that off my chest because I've had a few people email me. T- this has turned into a sort of late-night radio show, and they get a few emails from some losers. But uh, let me tell you something, chum. When you've hosted five years of overnight on Talk Sport... Uh, I genuinely do want... I mean, because why else would I ask people to come here to be interviewed? Um, unless someone else had pulled out a short notice. But always. <laughs> always. And tonight's guest is someone that I have wanted to interview for 
genuinely for a long time. He's an absolute star. He's one of the funniest uh, politicians um, around and uh, definitely a rising star. Anyway, we, so have a think about what questions you would like to ask him. We will have a beer break. We'll be back in about 20 minutes when I'll be joined by the phenomenal James Cleverly. For now, Happy New Year, and I'll see you in a bit. Welcome back. Hope you all had a good break. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight's guest is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Uh, as with all my guests. But he is someone, it is remarkable to think he was only elected in 2015 because he already feels like he's had so much impact and he's become such a big part of British politics. He has been irre- irreverent, uh, not irrelevant, he's been irreverent uh, on, he's never been irrelevant, he's been irreverent on Twitter in the past, which I'm sure is something we will discuss. He is touted as a future Prime Minister and if I can say this without sounding too sycophantic, He's the sort of change that perhaps a lot of people would like to see in the Tory party. Not just in the Tory party, but in politics in general. He's accessible, he's grounded, as well as being talented uh, and clever. He is the new Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party. Please give a huge welcome to James Cleverly. Oh, you've gone the far side. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> Don't worry. No, it's cool. It's good. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> just relax. But I, I realise that by telling you to relax, that's less relaxing, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's what... Just for the firing squad, they say, Don't worry, it won't hurt. <laughs> close your eyes, relax. It's good. It'll be fine. It, it it'll be easier than a firing squad, I hope. Um, I, I was going to ask you about um, Prime Minister's questions today, because Emily Thornby described the Tory party as a coalition of cavemen. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you agree with that analogy? No, we've got lots of women in our cave. <laughs> um, cave people. Uh, cave people. <laughs> it's the modern, caring, sharing, equal opportunity cave of the, of the Conservative Party. So we've got lots of... Uh, well, the leading cave person in our cave is a woman. And the last time I checked, the leading cave person in the Labour Party cave was a white middle-aged bloke. In my view, maybe Middle-aged? <laughs> a lot of middle-aged men getting very annoyed. Upper, upper. <laughs> so I, I know, look, I know, I know you're very, you're a big fan of making it cross-party and consensual and not too partisan and that kind of stuff. But I'm not. <laughs> so, um, so my view is the day after the Labour Party have had their second prime minister, then they can accuse us of sexism. Until then, Emily, second female prime minister. Second female prime minister. Is that female? Prime you said second prime minister. Second prime. Well, that'll do. <laughs> uh, second female prime minister. Until that point. Ram it. <laughs> in the nicest, non-caveman way. You're someone who enjoys the sort of rough and tumble of politics a bit. Do you have to behave yourself now that you've got a position when you're in uh, the Commons? Apparently, <laughs> uh, as I've been told three or four times since the 8th of January. <laughs> uh, who, by Burko or by the party? Or Downing Street? To be honest with you, if I ran through all the people who told me to behave myself... We'd run out of time for any other questions. Uh, no, I, 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 I do enjoy the rough and tumble. It's, it's a competitive sport. It, it, you know, it's a, um, it is a confrontational game. The, the, houses of part, well, the Chamber of the House of Commons is set out in that very face-to-face confrontational way. We don't do the semicircular parliament. It's very clear. There are two sides of the House. There's the government benches. There are the opposition benches. And it is, it is designed to be confrontational. And I, quite, I like that because there's a degree of honesty about it. Yeah. All, I mean, we, we see in other European politics, you've got these 
these, these semicircle, hemispheric kind of uh, uh, debating chambers. And the idea is it's all very consensual. It's hands across the divide. We're all in it together. And they hate each other. And they all pretend they don't. At least we don't pretend. You know, we're, we're up for it. I don't like them. They don't like me. I like the fact they don't like me. They like the fact I don't like them. We're all happy. It's good. It's good. It works. It works for us. It's, it's, it's the similar argument people make for segregation in football. <laughs> you know, you don't want a mixing with the away fans. You know, you kind of want that adversarial nature. Yeah, but so I'm a rugby player, and it's a bit of a weird one uh, in rugby. And I, the reason, the reason I think the adversarial nature of British parliamentary politics is important is it's like a, a, a safety valve. So there are no fights on rugby terraces because all the fights happen on the pitch. <laughs> and and you you know when really big sweaty blokes smash. Into each other for 80 minutes. Is this mass- rugby? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll edit that to make it sound something a little bit saucier, won't you? Um, so I've been to an England-New Zealand rugby match where the, where the Kiwis gave us a pasting. And, uh, and on the train back from Twickenham into, into Waterloo, everyone's sharing beers with each other. Because all the aggression is taken out in the appropriate place, which is on the pitch. And I do think, actually, having that very confrontational environment in the chamber of the house of commons that's where the that's where the confrontation that's where the argument should happen and my my position is and when you step away from that when you're in you know committee rooms or whether you're doing uh, cross party stuff or, or, or you know appg that that kind of more uh, less high profile but more team across the political divide that's where the confrontational politics should be put to one side and you should work to a, a higher goal. But in the chamber, get stuck in. <laughs> so Big to, time. To, to reflect the analogy, do, do you drink with any Labour MPs? I do. I got, I got, I've got, um, I go out of my way to be really nice to Labour MPs. And we have a drink, and they talk about nothing of any great particular importance, and they just say, How, how's your constituency? And I go, fine, how's yours? Yeah, good, good, good. But we talk about this now. But as they walk away, I'll go, thanks for that. I'll call you. <laughs> and all their political mates go, what are you, just, <laughs> what, are you t- what are you talking to the Tory about? They go, ah, oh, nothing, just constituency stuff. And I go, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and it causes, causes all kinds of shit. <laughs> big, time, big time. And when they come back to you, they go, what did you say? I go, Nothing. I literally said nothing. I said nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But are there any Labour MPs that you genuinely like? Oh, yeah, no, genuinely, genuinely loathe them. Genuinely loathe them. And I seem to get on best with the... Well, some of the centrists, some of the the Blairites, for want of a better name. It's not a phrase I like to use. Um... Because uh, you are one, or because you're not? One? <laughs> no, because because uh, because every time I use it about them, they get a whole load of grief from from the hard left. So you know, there are some people from the centre left I go very very well with, uh, very pragmatic people. But at the same time, there are some people from the traditional left of the Labour Party, um, which now momentum's involved. They're called Blairites. Um, so people from that traditional left of the Labour Party. <laughs> And I got very well with them because we literally have nothing in common. Um, there's uh, a couple of MPs from the north of England, um, and I love chatting with them. I have literally no idea what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, gee, I'm so I'll give up the what. I saw you, Jim, and I've lost, you know. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> 
Probably. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But they're, they're really lovely. I think, probably. <laughs> they might be slagging me off, only I wouldn't know, because they're from the north. <laughs> but it's, it, it's good to know that, that that spirit is there, because it is, we, we do live in confrontational times. I mean, you've been... I don't think you've ever been nasty in the past. You've been cheeky or perhaps rude. Cheeky, um, cheeky. During the coalition years, you got in trouble oh. for, for tweeting about um, Simon Hughes, the MP for Bermondsey, the then MP for Bermondsey. I don't Sunday. remember. I don't, this, I don't remember this incident. Let's you, move on. You called him a dick <laughs> on, <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, it's not what I said. It's not where I said it. It was when I said it. So, a coalition had been formed. David Cameron... Nick Clegg and their respective spin doctors had moved heaven and earth to not play into this whole hundred days of coalition story because it was felt that that was a hostage to fortune. So they were downplaying the whole hundred days. Their argument was, we've got a big job of work to do. It's a complicated thing. This whole kind of hundred-day arbitrary, no, that's ridiculous, it's blah, 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 blah. There is no hundred-day coalition story. Except some relatively unknown member of the London Assembly on late afternoon on day 99 of the coalition sits there and goes, I know we are meant to be coalition partners, or backspace partners, but that doesn't stop me thinking that Simon Hughes is a dick. No one will notice that. About two hours later, Andy Coulson on the phone. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what did he say? He basically said, this is my one phone call from prison. So no. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, no, 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 that was a, that was a later call. Um, no, he said the most sinister thing you can get from, from someone in his position, which is, James, I don't want you to worry. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be a problem. <laughs> Let's just keep your head down for a bit. I'll call you in the morning. <sighs> Basically, you might as well have just said, don't bother sleeping tonight. Just <laughs> <laughs> pace around your bedroom for a bit, because, uh, you know, I might call you. And then he did the second worst thing, which is he didn't call me in the morning. <laughs> then had, and then, and then, and then, towards the end of day 100, after it had kind of flushed itself through the system, some underling turned around and said, "I think, I think it's, I think it's been all right. Actually, I think it's been all right." But like, oh, thanks. I'm a day doing that with my bum all dark. <laughs> and you were nervous. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work on the podcast. No, no, Good. Good. <laughs> but they were... It was difficult, because you were a parliamentary candidate at the time. You'd been selected. You were a member of the London Assembly, but you weren't, right. yet, you weren't yet an MP. But you, no. you, you, your profile was, was, was growing. You were becoming prominent. It, it grew team. on day 99. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did Cameron get involved? Did he have a word? No. Did you no. know him quite well then, or not? Uh, not really. I knew him slightly vicariously, because... Do you remember back in the day, the early days of the internet... With dial-up modems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started a blog back when being a blogger was a thing, and it made you different to, like, proper humans. So was it more sad then or less sad? Oh, much more sad. <laughs> much more sad. Because no one else was doing it. And, what did um, you blog about? 
I blogged about me. What, so what, what, like, what, like Adrian Mole, like? Yeah. <laughs> and why am I saying this? Because now people go and look for it. Yeah. So there is still the internet cache of my of blogs from about 2000, I think it's 2003, 2004. Yeah. And I reread some of them. Because when you get, you know, I got to my position, I thought, actually, yeah, is, this, is there anything, do I need to do a Toby, as we call it? You know? <laughs> do I need to do a Toby before rather than after the world descends upon my internet history. So I read back and I thought, I haven't got time to... I'll let the news of the world or the mirror do it for me um, and I'll deal with it when it it comes. Um, So I read back and I started at the very beginning and I thought, if anyone chooses to do this in the hope of finding something controversial, by blog post 27, they will have been numbed (laughs) to such an extent that I am safe. I am saying because even if really offensive stuff happened, they'd go, "Oh, this guy's just so dull." And I re- literally, it's like um, out canvassing in Lewisham, dropped all my leaflets. They blew all over the street. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm reading it, going, "Oh no, that's it. <laughs> that is literally my life." <laughs> and I, I, at that point, I thought, "I'm inoculated. I, I made myself so bland." That no one will, no one will read this shit. But like, how? If you, I've never done a blog, so like, how? Um, don't think I've. Yeah. <laughs> don't think I've. But how, did you know how many people were ever reading it? In the early days, uh, at least one. <laughs> Ish, give or take. Um, so in the early days, not very many. But oh, I remember why I told you about the blog. Actually, sorry, I remember why I told you about the blog. Because when David Cameron did his web Cameron, you know his blog. Yes. I was one of the first five links on his blog. So suddenly. I went from, you know, Adrian Mole, how old was I, mid-30s, parliamentary candidate in Lewisham East, top target for the Labour Party (laughs) to hold, (laughs) which they did very successfully. But I, I, you know, I found myself, and all of a sudden, my web stack counters started going uh, crazy, and I thought, oh, this is obviously some kind of error. And it turned out that David Cameron went, oh, I... Starting my blog, I better link to some other Tory bloggers, and it was me, Ian Dale, and like, a couple of others. And and suddenly I have this, this, and then all of a sudden I clammed up. I was like, oh shit, you know, people will want more than spilt leaflets, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I'm ready to give them more, you know. <laughs> but I did. I stepped up to the plate. Um, some I fan to... fiction. <laughs> <laughs> David Cameron fan. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting pressure, though, to go from writing as if no one's, you know, dancing like no one's watching. And no, not as if. <laughs> <laughs> no, as if. Genuinely, no one watching. Blogging and no one watching. To then, actually, that first taste almost of, I suppose, a political audience for yeah. what you're putting out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I should have done the Simon Hughes thing before rather than after, in hindsight. Before... Anyone was reading rather than after anyone was reading. Although, to be fair to Simon, he's been jumping about all over. Well, I bumped into him not that long afterwards. And I thought, oh, this is going to be really awkward. This is going to be really, really awkward. But I thought, I better, I better go and say hello. So I went and say hello. And he was just charming beyond belief. So out of the two of us, the one that felt like a bit of a dick was me. <laughs> <laughs> so, lesson learned. It's interesting... The Coulson style, slightly Campbell-esque of, you know, making you sweat it. But he should be careful because you're a military man. 
Oh, yeah. An officer. Uh, an officer. There are some officers. There, is, uh, uh, there are some military people in the audience. Uh, there's a Royal Engineer. In me. So I'm a gunner, yeah. both in my football affiliation and in my regiment. Um, and if you don't understand the various functions of the Royal Artillery, sorry, the various functions in, in the military, uh, yeah, the infantry do a job. They're the guys that runs, run about and trenches and bayonets and stuff. You've got cavalry there in the tanks. Royal Engineers build bridges, block bridges, and this kind of stuff. And the Royal Artillery, uh, our main function is to be God's authority on earth. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's what that's what that's what I did oh, as a part time. Only Saturdays, Sundays, and Tuesday nights. Um, so, because um, uh, yeah, so so I've been in, in, in the armed forces part time for twenty seven years. And would you ever want to see active service? God, no. <laughs> so why, why no, do you risk no, no, I joke. I do, I, no, in, so I've been, I had a bit of a funny um, situation. So in 2004... Dropped leaflets. 2004, <laughs> so 2004, um, the Gulf War was just uh, kicking off, or had, had, had kicked off, and for the first time in, in a generation... Reserve soldiers were being called up, and my assumption, my working assumption, was that at some point I was going to be, I was going to be called up, um, and uh, and then one of the senior officers in my regiment said, "Actually, James, just to let you know, you, you're probably going to be called up in the next six months or so." Wow! And I said, "Okay, yeah, that's that, that's cool, that's cool." And I said, "Look, I'm a parliamentary candidate, so how's this going to work with the general election?" And they went, "You know, well, you're going to have to work around it." I'm like, "Yeah, okay." Um, <laughs> Not sure how that, but fine, I'll, I'll do it. And then um, I had assumed that I was going to be going to Basra, uh, which is where the British uh, headquarters was at the time. Um, but then because a number of soldiers who had been called up had struggled to get their jobs back, the British Army decided it, need some, it needed a pool of people, a team of people in the UK, making sure soldiers in Iraq had their jobs to come back to. So instead of sending me to Basra... In Iraq, they sent me to Luton in Bedfordshire. <laughs> I was really pissed off. I didn't want to go to Basra, but between there and Luton, <laughs> you know. I know you're not meant to ask, but how many kills? It turned out to be a fake device, but there was a bomb underneath my there's bomb underneath my Land Rover. In Luton. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deliberately was... targeted because you were military? Oh, yeah, yeah. The big giveaway was it was a green and black Land Rover with British Army <laughs> on it. Yeah. So, yeah, at some point someone put... It was, as I say, it was, it was a fake under-vehicle explosive device uh, under, under one of our vehicles. And so, you know, I was thinking... There, there, amongst my circle of friends, a lot of people had been mobilised and, and been sent to Iraq. And I thought, God, there's, there's a group of us in this in this you know, hotbed of Islamic fundamentalism, and, and the rest of them are over in Iraq. <laughs> you know? So, um... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I, I spent a year, I spent a year in Luton. And you don't get a medal for that. <laughs> Should do. But you've, but, you've been, but you've been decorated with service medals, haven't you? You've got two or three? I've got the hanging around long enough medals. I've yeah. got hanging around long enough for the Queen to have been on the throne for um, 50 years. Then the hanging around long enough for the Queen to be on the throne for 60 years. And then the hanging around long enough in a purely personal capacity. 
So I got the three really hanging around, but not for going to Luton. That's what really... <laughs> that's what irks. That's what hurts. Because uh, Clive Lewis had a yeah. similar experience, and he, he got sent out to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever encounter him during your time together? No, so we never, we never crossed paths uh, whilst we were serving, although we were, both of us were in, uh, in regiments based around the east of England, uh, around East Anglia, but we never, we never quite crossed paths. Um, not, I mean, it, it, it's not a big thing. I don't want to kind of make a, a thing of it, but I was quite a bit senior to him, so. <laughs> <laughs> There's no particular reason why I would kind of hang around with his <laughs> level of junior... Yeah, I was quite... It's not a thing. <laughs> but the military is a hierarchical organisation. Yeah. And again, this won't work on the podcast. I was kind of there. <laughs> and he kind of wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, it's not a thing. <laughs> it's just a thing. <laughs> because he, I think... Uh, uh, I mean, I don't Although that said, he went to war and I didn't. So I could... <laughs> 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 But he, uh, As a cameraman. I think it's fair to say that he um, was... <laughs> as I say, but as I say, but as I say, it's not a thing. Because <laughs> I think his politics were, were slightly informed by his time in the, in, the, in the forces. And yet you could probably say the same thing, yet you both reached different political conclusions. I mean, what, what are the political lessons you think you learned from service? I think... With a, with a lot of these big, old, powerful institutions, there are two ways you can interact with it. And, and I think this is very much the case with Parliament as well. If you go into it with the idea that this thing is broken and I am going to move heaven and earth to fix it, you, know, you push against an institution like that, it will push back. And you know, Clive is, what, in his 30s? The British Army is a couple of centuries old. There is only ever going to be one winner in that battle. And unsurprisingly, it was the British Army. If you go in there and say, this organisation ain't perfect, and I'm going to try in my time to nudge it in the right direction. But if you don't inherently love it, don't join it. Um, and I think, and maybe I'm being really unfair and, and you know, putting words into Clive's mouth. I like him. I disagree on many things. But I like him. We, we do get on very, very well. We... We have quite a bit of, you know, good-natured banter and joshing. Um, no touching. Um, um, he made that clear. Um, so, but, um, so I went into the army with the mindset of, I love this organisation, I want to be part of it. And for me, I, I joined the regulars initially, and through injury I, I, I came out. It was a sports injury, nothing you know, military. The sports injury came out. I was heartbroken. I was absolutely heartbroken. It was something I wanted to do massively. And actually doing it uh, as a reservist, for me, um, it, 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 it satisfied that, that thing. But I've always loved the armed forces. It is not perfect. But there are, there are amazing good things, and certainly as an officer, about leadership, about how teams work, about how to persuade people to do difficult things in difficult circumstances, either at war or not. Um, these are things that I learned from it. But I always, I've, I've enjoyed every single minute that I've been in uniform. I'm very proud of the, of the you know, modest amount of time that I've served collectively. It's you know, over 27 years, but, but collectively really you know, a few years total worth of service. I've loved every single minute of it and still some of my very, very best friends 
uh, are people I met through the, through the military. And what I see now in Parliament is a lot of similarities. A lot of people together, we work together, we kind of live together. You often find, my wife's in the audience, you'll back me up on this, you often find you spend as much time with your parliamentary colleagues as you do with your family. And if fundamentally you don't like that institution, you're never going to be happy there. It will beat you. You can, you, can, you can bend it and evolve it, but you can't beat it. And if you get your head around that, you can have a brilliant time, whether in the forces or in Parliament. Yeah, I mean, you have to get the balance right. You know, Gavin Williamson spends too much time with his colleagues. Uh, and not enough time with his family. Um, <laughs> so there is a balance to be struck. But um, you, you talk about... I wonder what the, what, what the political equivalent is, then. You say, why join an organisation if you don't love it? Do you love the Tory party? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't often hear Tories Tory talk about loving and that the really in, grips me. in the way that Labour people. Yeah, that really grips me. That really grips me. I envy the Labour Party's kind of institutional passion. Yeah. You talk to Labour MPs, they know their history. They know the stuff that they do. I, I, I went to speak at uh, um, a Conservative student association not that long ago, and, and someone started talking about animal welfare and and you know how what can we do to show that the conservative party uh, the, the, i was very struck by the phraseology of the question has become a party that cares about animals that was their question and i went whoa 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 i'm not having any of this has become shit no we don't that's <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> oh bugger <laughs> um but I said, I said, I said, you need to read your history, mate. You need to read the party history. It was, a, it was someone elected on a Conservative ticket that brought through the first ever animal welfare legislation back in the early 1800s. That saint, and I can't remember his bloody name, so I should read my history. Um, but uh, brought through the first animal welfare legislation. Uh, and he then went on to form the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which then went on to become the RSPCA. The RSPCA was started by a Tory. It was Tories that brought in the Factory Act that stopped children being sent up chimneys into threshing machines and and weaving looms and that kind of stuff. We have a, a, a massive repository of really morally good... Uh, um, stuff in our in our long history, in our recent history, in our contemporary time in in government, and it really pisses me off how many of my colleagues either don't know that or forget that, or if they do remember it, don't say it, because we can't just assume that everyone will know that throughout history we have been on the side of the angels, and I genuinely feel very passionately about that. We're the Tories. We, yeah, I know you want to say that. You might disagree. I think you're the, good the Tories in the room. We're the good guys. <laughs> we are the good guys. And, and, and the left, yeah, well-intentioned, beautifully well-intentioned as they, as they are. Hearts absolutely in the right place, head up their asses. <laughs> you know, they keep doing their best and screwing up. If you really want to distribute pain and suffering to the working people of a society, put a left-wing government in place. <laughs> yeah. well, thank you. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Thanks for coming, ladies. <laughs> we don't often hear um, Conservatives talk emotionally about politics yeah. that often. And it's, it's a problem, really, that, that has allowed um, Corbyn to get to the brink of Downing Street because actually part of his brand is that he is principled and mm. therefore, as a result, anyone who stands against him inside the Labour Party or indeed outside mm. of it 
principle isn't part of that brand. And actually, mm. that's something that is baked into his identity now. Yeah. And equally, a lot of people don't vote for the Tories for the same reason that people yeah. would vote for the Labour Party. People, there's a sort of pr- grudging pragmatism behind a lot of Conservative voters. It, it, Matt, you're spot, you're spot on. And it's totally our fault. It is totally, totally our fault as a Conservative <coughs> Party. We cannot blame anyone else for how people view the Conservative Party. Because we, you know, we have let that, you know, oh, there... Lots of people, lots of people say, you know, variations around, of a theme around the... You know, I vote for you because I, th- I think you'd probably be the best for the economy and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's that kind of... It's like a trip to... It's like, it's like doing a tax return or a trip to the doctor or something like that. You do it because you know you really ought to. You don't want to. You'd rather do something else. But you do it because deep down, ooh, grudgingly, kind of blah, blah, blah. And we shouldn't... I don't think we should settle for being the grudgingly tolerated party of government. <laughs> I would really like it if people voted for us because they went, you know, I really want to vote Tory. Some people do. Um, and, you know, I want to... I'd love to... I would love to have the kind of electoral enthusiasm that the Labour Party enjoys. I think it's, it's fantastic. And, and even though it's massively, it proved to be to our electoral detriment, I love the fact that in the 2017 general election, a whole load of people who never voted before were really enthused to vote. I love in the European referendum, a load of people who'd never voted before were enthused to vote. I love, I love mass participation. This is my job and my hobby and my obsession and I would love it if everyone was excited about it as me. But I, we, me and my colleagues, that's all down to us. If we don't do it, no one else is. So, but why is it, do you think, that the Labour Party are more romantic and more emotional and the Tory party isn't? Is it, does it go with the ideology? I'll tell you exactly why. I've given a lot of thought to this. And I'll tell you exactly why. If you're left of centre, if you're a socialist, capitalist, uh, sorry, socialist, communist or you know, left of centre, you need to use eloquence. You need to use rhetoric. That, those soaring speeches, those brilliant stump speeches that you, that you see throughout the, the Labour tradition, and, and indeed Corbyn, not necessarily at the dispatch box, but in terms of in front of big audiences, he's really quite good at this. You need to use your words to win people over to your arguments because your arguments are shit. <laughs> See, I'm a Tory, so I'm a Tory. I just point at stuff and go, socialism is shit. Point at Russia. Yeah. Point at North Korea. Point at India when it was socialist. Point at France under Hollande. See, 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 see. see. So my speeches, are, it's almost, it's like when I go on holiday to France, I can't speak French, but I can point... <laughs> and I and I and I and I can and I can pull that slightly needy face, which implies the thing I'm pointing to. I would like. And, that's, yeah. what, 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 what is that face? It's uh, it's kind of it's a bit, again won't work on the podcast yeah. like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's point really at food, good. I point at drink, and that kind of, I point at stuff. Yeah. And and that's it. Kind of works, but because the Labour Party have no the, the left of centre have historically only a catalogue of disaster. They have to keep reselling their ideas through rhetorical flourishes. And this is why uh, Corbyn's saying, if only, if only we taxed the super-rich a tiny bit more and big companies a tiny bit more, we could have the biggest 
post-war spending splurge in the history of mankind, and trust me, the maths works because of soaring rhetoric. And I go, uh, it never has, and you've literally tried it all the time, all over the world. The classic, East and West Germany, East and West Germany, it was the classic... Uh, you know, twin sibling experiments, the where they separate twins yeah. and they this whole nature nurture thing, yeah. and they and they get one twin to live that life and the other twin to live, to live a different life, and they see how different they are. The whole nature nurture. Post Second World War, that literally happened with Germany. We cut it in half. One side of Germany was free market capitalist. The other side of Germany was uh, socialist or communist. These are Germans. These are some of the smartest, hardest working uh, uh, people on the planet. And socialism is such a shockingly bad system of government, it even made Germans poor. <laughs> and they're German. <laughs> if that is not evidence that your idea is shit, what is it made Germans poor? To such an extent that cautious Germans who are not naturally risk-taking were, were risking being shot to climb over the Berlin Wall to go west. No one ever got shot going the other way. They all got shot coming in our direction. You could, equally, centre-left, left-wing governments could say, we could just point at failure. We could point at two recessions under the Tories, mass unemployment, the erosion of our industrial base, homelessness, in-work poverty. Both sides can point at failure. Mm. I just wonder, is there something more profound about Conservatives that they're less likely to eulogise their own side? Do they, you know, is, is there something in there? I mean, in terms of... Left and right, you're talking about hard left stuff. No, no, I mean, in terms of social democracy. Talk to us. But, but even, what, even, even New Labour. Were they, though? <laughs> See, now you sound like a Corbynista. What <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> do think... you and Clive get on? <laughs> yeah, I know. So, um, so the Labour Party under Blair did really well when they basically did a half credible impression of the Tories. <laughs> The back half, the back half of their time in office, when they went, everyone trusts us because we've been like the Tories. So now they trust us, we can really screw things up. And so, so initially, the, yeah, the Labour government, they were, the spending was strained. They were, they were quite, they were, they were naturally cautious. As I say, they were, they were, they were mimicking quite consciously so um, the, the the Tories that had recently left office when. Uh, Brown and and uh, Brown particularly on uh, domestic policy thought actually you know what I've got a bit of headroom now I can I can be like a proper Labour government I can start splurging but I, need, I still need to look vaguely Tory so what I'll do is I'll hide it off the balance sheet do it all through PFIs we'll we'll do this massive redistribute and to be fair to him he was doing some very traditionally Labour stuff and I think the criticism of the, uh, the this is where the Corbynistas are wrong is that, you know, Brown, particularly with domestic policy in government, was doing some very traditional Labour stuff. He was doing a huge amount of wealth distribution. You can criticise him for lots of stuff. You can criticise him for lots of stuff. You can't really criticise him for that. But what you can criticise him for was putting us in a position that when uh, the banking crisis happened, we were remarkably ill-prepared to to deal with it. Um, And I do criticise him for that. But the... Uh, as I say, yeah, the first half of, of the Blair Brown years, they were they were being Tories, and it kind of worked. But that was it. Well, they, they also brought in the minimum wage and uh, all sorts yeah. of social policy that we, we wouldn't have gotten to the Tories. Um, so, in terms of spending restraint, absolutely. Yeah. But in other areas, they were very Labour. And yeah, and this is and this is where I do think the Corbynistas. Uh, it's it's a bit of an Aunt Sally. They're, they're a straw man. They're they're, they're setting up. 
the idea that Brown and Blair were basically the same as the Tories and were evil. In fact, even more so because they were, they were hiding the fact they were Tories. That's bollocks. That is completely ridiculous. They were a Labour government. They, well, they were a Labour government. Um, they, uh, they weren't an explicitly Labour government. They, they didn't... They weren't as proud about their Labour heritage as I think a lot of people in the Labour tradition would like them to be, and I think that's a point of friction. But they were a Labour government. As I say, you can blame them for lots of things, but you can't blame them for that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I just wonder, I don't want to revisit the financial crash, but when you talk about as a, as a conservative being able to point at things and say that's broken, the, yeah. the financial crash was really a failure of capitalism. No, no, it wasn't. No, it absolutely wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was financial markets deregulated to the point where they didn't even understand their own products. The financial markets were the most regulated sector in human history. But they'd been massively deregulated. But they were still the most regulated. The thing was, when you look at regulation... So we to, if we'd have regulated them less... If you'd regulated them better. So no one, looks, no one looks at a painting. No one looks at a painting and goes, what that painting needs is more paint. It's well, it must a, do at some point. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> But it's hanging in the gallery. <laughs> so, the, but the point I make, the point I make, so the point I make is, is, uh, is if you think of regulation, if, if you think of regulation is more means better, yeah. then you're going to trip up. Then you're going to trip up because actually we regulated the banks in. It, there was loads of regulation, but what it did was it funneled all the banks to do fundamentally the same thing in the same way all across the globe. What it also did was created massive regulatory burdens. So that if you were a competitor to the big half a dozen global banks, you had no chance. So you squeezed out all the competition. So what we were left with was, you know, around the globe, maybe a dozen massive institutions so big and so powerful they could dictate the terms of engagement, even to governments, which is exactly what they did. And when those big oligopolies fell over... Everyone said, oh, look, it's a failure of free market competition. And my hypothesis, my, my contention, is that actually if there had been more competition, if there had been more banks. So when I was a kid, you walked down Lewisham High Street, there were 20 different financial institutions. There were building societies, there were, there were loads and loads of different banks. By the time of the banking collapse, there was three. And unsurprisingly, when you only have three or four players in the market, in any market, whether it's banking, energy supply, house building, whenever you've only got a small number of players, it falls over. That's not a failure 
of free markets. It's a prevention of free markets doing their thing. Wasn't there also, though, a moral problem that people felt with what had happened there, that people were, were borrowing money at extortionate interest rates? They were allowed to borrow that money when actually to protect people from their, you know, from their houses getting repossessed or whatever it is, the financial strain that a lot of people knowingly got themselves into, but nevertheless, actually there was a sense that the state had stopped caring about people at the lower income, end of the income scale who were then bearing the brunt of these forces. I hear what you're saying, but actually if you look, and again, I'm going to give a degree of credit to, uh, uh, to, to Brown and Blair about this, but again... I'm focusing on Brown because he really was... He was doing domestic policy even under uh, uh, Tony Blair and then when he was Prime Minister. There are decisions that could have been made. And if you really wanted to be arch-free marketeer tooth and claw, you could have just said, you know what, some of these institutions need to go to the wall because the people who were making money when they were doing well should lose money when they're doing badly. That's one of the underlying moral principles behind you know, free market, free enterprise uh, capitalism. Um, however, the decision was made to insulate some people who probably didn't deserve to be insulated. Because if we let them go to the wall, they would have suffered in, you know, maybe a couple of hundred cases in New York and, or in London where we were under control, City of London and whatever. But thousands of people who did not deserve in any way, shape or form to feel the pain would have felt the pain so much more sharply. And we, people would have been handing back the keys to their house. They would have been destitute. And um, Gordon Brown and then David Cameron and George Osborne basically decided to not make that recession as short and sharp and as painful as it might have otherwise been. So interest rates came down, which meant that people could just... It hurt, it was painful, but could just about keep on top of their mortgage repayments. They could just about keep their businesses afloat. They could just about keep body and soul together. What it meant was the, uh, the desire to reduce the deficit had to be pushed back and pushed back and push, be pushed back because to do it more quickly would have hurt the very people who didn't deserve to be hurt. And that was a political decision. So when you know, the Corbynistas say, oh, this was a political decision, yeah, damn right it was a political decision. And the political decision was not to chuck good people under the wheels of the bus because some Big fish and big banks screwed up. So, what's the what? What is the where is the big Tory vision now for a country where, since that period, growth has been slow, wages even slower. People now the problem isn't about people being unemployed; it's about in work poverty. Yeah. Where is the grand conservative centre right vision for the sunlit uplands that you yourself said weren't present in the, well, in the election campaign? So, I've I've I've, I've said this publicly a, a couple of times when. Um, when Theresa May became Prime Minister, she made a speech on the steps of Downing Street, and it was a really good speech. She had been Home Secretary for a very long time, uh, the longest time in, in the modern political era, and she had spent most of that time as Home Secretary just keeping her head down, you know, getting on with work, not doing the big flamboyant set-piece speeches. But she made a speech on the steps of Downing Street, and it was a really good speech, and it was a genuine compassionate, conservative vision. It was about not protecting the big fish and the big banks and the big companies, but it was about helping the people that were grafting, the people you know, who were in work but not comfortable in work, who were you know, uh, earning money but not enough, were struggling every month. You, know, you start getting to the 20-something of the month and there are millions of people in Britain going, I don't even want to look to see what 
how, how much money I've got because I know it won't be enough. There are loads of people like that. And she set out a vision to help them stay in work and get better jobs and, and grow and, and be liberated and have genuine choice. And it was a great speech. And you know what? If we had, if we had just done that, if we had just almost put that speech on constant loop during the general election campaign, we would have done better than we did. Because I think that was a really credible and, more importantly, deliverable conservative agenda. You make the economy work, point one, but you make it work for real people, point two. And without both of those, there's no point. So how has she lost her way? And can she get, can she get it back? I do, I, do absolutely think, um, I do absolutely think she can get it back because she is naturally a grafter. So she's not the most salesy or flamboyant or, or razzmatazz uh, uh, politician, I think. Degree of understatement there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but she is a grafter. She is totally on top of the detail. And actually now, you know, go through these Brexit negotiations and an economy which still isn't quite where we want to be and having you know, a, a, a wafer-thin working majority, really what you need is a grafter. For me, there's a side of her that I would like to see more of. What side's that? <laughs> oh, don't say it. Are you making it smutty? No, I'm you not. Take, you are. And only you were... Uh, that didn't, honestly am I not. literally the only one that... Am I literally the only one? Yeah. 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 Okay, that's not good. <laughs> so, um, unless you think she should... <laughs> She has got, and I know everyone says this about prime ministers, the prime ministers have a massive disincentive to be kind of open and funny and that kind of stuff because they, they've got a really serious job. And, um, but there is a side to Theresa May. I ain't going to get in so much trouble for telling this story, <laughs> but I don't care. Um, so uh, while she was Home Secretary, I arranged a lunch for businesswomen from my constituency. So these are Essex businesswomen, entrepreneurial Essex women. And they, in businesses from, you know, fashion and beauty, which you might, you know, suspect, right through to construction and heavy industry. And, um, and they came down from Essex, and they, you know, had a bit of bubbly on the terrace before the lunch, and we had lunch, and it was 40 Essex women and the Prime Minister, sorry, as the then Home Secretary, and me. And it was after I did the whole snog, marry, avoid thing with oh, John Peter. Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. We said that you wanted to snog Theresa May. Yes, I did. I Before he asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> I slipped him a little note saying, ask me that one. I want to try and get that into the public domain. So, um, so, this, so we're at this lunch, and, um, and uh, so we'd had the main course, and Theresa was going to give a little speech before heading off out to do Home Secretary-type serious counter-terrorism stuff. And she said, it's so wonderful to see so many successful businesswomen from the county of Essex. Uh, I, of course, am not from Essex. I'm from Sussex. But, of course, ladies... And she put her hand on my shoulder and she went, they both end in sex. <laughs> and, all these, and all these slightly tanked-up Essex women went... <laughs> you, know, and, and during, you were there like jacket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was only a matter of time. <laughs> but during the election campaign, when she was asked, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? I was like, do the... the this thing you said, the sex, do the sex, gang, do the, say that one, because that was really funny. And there's part of me that says, you know what, just, there, there, is, a, there is genuinely a really funny, cheeky, light-hearted side of her, and I, and I get her, stop it. Stop, you're making up your own gags out there. I'm in all kinds of trouble, not with a pre my wife's in the audience, right? 
every line of this anecdote is getting worse for me. <laughs> but, the, but, but, but part of me thinks, you know what, that, and I think the British people, the British people have a lot of respect and admiration for her, but perhaps don't really feel they know her. I think it would do her really, really well to maintain that reputation for being, you know, detail-focused and a grafter, but also have people go, actually, you know what, that's funny, I like that. If only there was a sort of monthly platform that would allow politicians to... Finally. <laughs> <laughs> put a word in, mate, put a word in. I tell you, she, would, she, she won't do it because, you know, she's the Prime Minister and you can never... Pres- not, you've had former Prime Ministers. Yeah. You've had, you've had St, uh, St Tony of, of Blair. <laughs> um... So you know what? I'll put in a good. I'll put in a good word. You had former party leaders. You've had uh, absolutely William Hague. William Hague. Um, look, I'll put in a good word, mate. I'll put in a good word as long as you don't screw me over in the last. In the last. In the last kind of. No, absolutely not. I mean, when when she appointed you to be deputy chair of the Tory party in that in that uh, reshuffle, mm-hmm. did she? Was it the classic? You know, the switchboard from number ten. Did she speak to you directly? It was exactly how it. it I imagined it would be. And did you have any inkling it was coming? You kind of get a bit of a vibe, but reshuffles are, are funny. They are really messy and untidy, and the best laid plan. And every reshuffle is like this. People say, "Oh, you know, people didn't want to go, and people did this." People. Every reshuffle is messy, which is why sensible prime ministers do them as rarely as possible. Yeah. Um, but on on reshuffle day, everyone's waiting for the call, and I'd been. You know, a number of people said, oh, James, you'd be really great in that role and I'll put in a good word for you and blah, blah, blah. You don't know for certain. You kind of hope, fingers crossed, but you don't know. But the, the phone call that you're hoping for is your mobile phone rings and it's a withheld number. Yeah. So you answer the phone and you go, hello, James Cleverley. Well, you wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> in fact, no one else does, <laughs> which is a shame. But so, so, um, so you answer the phone and then you hear a voice saying, uh, hello, this is number 10 switchboard. Can you hold, please? Like, just, just, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, so the first voice you hear is number 10 switchboard, and it's, hi, it's number 10 switchboard, will you hold, please? The next voice you hear is, hi, uh, Miss Cleverly, it's uh, the Prime Minister's Diary Secretary. And then they ask, they ask the kind of question, they ask a question which isn't a question, in the same way when a police officer says, uh, would you blow into this bag, please, sir? <laughs> it's not really a question. Yeah. And the question is, would you be available for a meeting with the Prime Minister at quarter past two? <laughs> or, no, quarter past twelve. And I said, yeah. I didn't need to check. <laughs> I didn't need to check the diary because I knew it was clear. And I said, uh, yes. And, uh, and, then, and then you get the clue, which is, um, will you come in via the main gate uh, through the front door of number 10, please? Because there's two ways in. You're going through the front door or through the back door. If you're going through the front door, if you're going through the front door, you're going to get a promotion. If you're going through the back door, you're going to get fired. Now, I wasn't a nothing, so I knew I wasn't going to get fired. So I was like, yes. I didn't know what it was, but uh, you know, I had, a, had an inkling. And um, so that was all really exciting. And, uh, and I was, when I took the call, I was with a parliamentary colleague, and they went, oh, is that the, is that the call? I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, again, that doesn't work on the podcast. It's like, I'm going to stop doing mime. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so were yeah, they so jealous, the parliamentary colleague? Uh, no, actually, this is the, 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 the cliche that we're all a bunch of venal, backstabbing, crawl over broken glass uh, kind of people. It, it's, not, it's not the case. When I went, yeah, uh, they went, oh, brilliant, really, really excited. It was really, well, I tell you what really freaked me out, though, because um, a couple of, as I walked through the parliamentary estate, 
on reshuffle day, loads of people saying, all right, have you had the call? I didn't really want to lie, but I didn't really want to go, uh, yeah, I have actually. <laughs> so I went and hid in Will Quince's office. Yeah. And uh, we were watching the telly. And it was coming towards 12 o'clock. And I walked into his office. And, and I'd been told to be there at quarter past 12. I walked into his office and I said, who's gone in? He went, no one. I went, yeah, come on, who's gone in? <laughs> he went, yeah, no one. And generally, the rule is you, you start the most senior. And I went, well, no one's gone in. He went, no, no one's gone in. It's five to 12. And he said, yeah, when are you going in? I said, uh, quarter past. He went, really? I went, yeah, quarter past 12. <laughs> no, seriously, who's gone in? And he went, no one's gone in. But James Brockenshire stood down as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And he went, James, you've done military. Military history. You've done the security stuff. You've done yeah. counterterrorism stuff in London. Yeah. You've done the... You could, and I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> no and he went, it's got to be, it's got to be you. And I went, no, no, no. And then at 12 o'clock, Brandon yeah. turned up and walked in. And I'm looking at this, still going, oh, this is all getting a bit weird. And Will went, you better go, mate, you've got to be there at quarter past 12. And I assumed that in the 10 minutes between leaving his office and getting to Downing Street, loads of appointments would have been announced. Of course, none of them were. And I'm walking into Downing Street with people going, what are you hoping for, Mr. Cleverly? And I'm like, not Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in and uh, she offered me the deputy, she offered to be the deputy chairmanship. And, uh, and I, I, obviously, I, I, you know, it's a job that I think is a really important job. It's, it's one that I like to think, <laughs> it's one that I like to think I'm well suited uh, for. And um, obviously, I, you know, I said yes. And I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> for a kiss, for the benefit of the tape. Because <laughs> this week's been a big week for the. I mean, every week now is just make or it feels like it's make or break for the prime yeah. minister. And these Brexit impact papers. Uh, I, I know you were a, a, a lever, and you, you're still of that mind. Um, it's been a bit of a shambles this week. Hasn't no, it? it's <laughs> it's exciting. It's exciting. Uh, now, I'll tell you why it's so exciting. And I, I predicted this. I said the, the, really, the only really exciting bit about the referendum, about the whole Brexit process, will be on referendum night, results night. And after that, it will become increasingly dull and procedural. And now we get things which are quite dull and procedural and go, oh, my God, they're really exciting. These are seismic events. So some civil servants who really thought Brexit was a bad idea, wrote a paper saying, I know, and I know you spoke about this in the first half, I know we said that, that in a couple of weeks' time this will happen. I know that was our last prediction, really short-term prediction, and it was spectacularly wrong, but I still really don't like the idea of Brexit, so I'm now going to write this 15-year projection, having got my 15-week projection wrong, saying Brexit's going to be really bad, or maybe a bit bad, but definitely bad. And I'm not saying that these are unuseful documents, but they are just part of the mass of things that the, 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 the Prime Minister and Secretaries of State will consider when making decisions. But the idea that because they say Brexit will be a bad idea, they are theref- therefore written on tablets of stone, difficult Topic for a uh, Labour, you know, uh, staff. <laughs> but but it doesn't make them the truth. It makes them something which needs to be considered when making further decisions. But isn't this the danger when it feels like there's a vacuum? You know, both sides of the debate want information on 
what yeah. the deal's going to be, what this means for me and my family and yeah, whether yeah. I can buy a house and all, all the implications of what Brexit means as the implications of a general election. But it does feel as if, though, there's an element of secrecy about it. The government's been slightly evasive. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not think the government should go on the front foot and say, actually, we've got forecasts that show it's going to be good? I mean, at least spin it. Um, I mean, negotiations. Negotiations. Lie. Lie. <laughs> lie a bit. We're too honest. That's our problem. We're too honest. Write that down in your bit of paper. And um, The thing with negotiations is they are, by definition, secretive. Now, the real irony is that the EU27, because they have to collectively sign off all their negotiating positions agree these collective negotiations where they write down, they get them all signed off and they go, oh, look, we've got this big wadge of paper. Look at us being terribly well prepared. We've got a big stack of paper. Look at your Secretary of State. He hasn't even got a pen. Yeah. So we've got paper. You don't even have a biro. We are so better prepared. They're not really prepared. They're constrained because that's a big rule book of saying you can't go there, you can't go there, you can't go there. Yeah. With us, we have, and we said this right from the get-go, we're going to play our cards close to our chest because that's how you negotiate successfully. And you're right. It is massively frustrating because businesses and people say, I want a degree of certainty. The truth is that we can't give them total certainty. But as the negotiations progress, you start narrowing the range of possibilities. So you know, some, of the, some of the potential Brexit scenarios are now off the table. So people and businesses can start discounting those in their planning and focus on. We are not going to get to the single point where we go, that is Brexit until we get to Brexit. And I know it's unnerving and it's disheartening and it's suboptimal, but that is really the only way it can be. Isn't part of the problem as well? Um, and I'm open-minded about it, even though I did vote Remain, and I totally agree about negotiations. You know, there's a sense of fair play that not everything the government has said, not everything the Leave side have said is ridiculous. So, like, I think there is too much tribalism around this issue. But just... And, and that example is a good one. You know, Barnier with his ring binder of papers. Now, that might mean he's constrained. It also means... He understands the language of politics and the fact that that picture will tell a story and create an impression. Doesn't the Leave side, the government, have to get better at communication? Yeah, it's a, there, there is an argument. There's, but yeah, that was spin. That big ring binder was... was it, it was spin. Yeah. It was... And but you're it, talking to a Blairite, mate. I love it. Oh, God, yeah, of course. <laughs> spin is good. It is. It spin is. improves lives. It is. Spin clarifies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you who's really good at spin. I tell you, I genuinely, and massively underrated in British politics for this, but who's really brilliant at spin? Corbyn. Oh, yeah. He's brilliant at spin. The idea that a guy in his late 60s listens to UK grime whilst tending his allotment <laughs> and actually knows what he means when he says, man, not hot. <laughs> I, excuse me, what? <laughs> Sorry, do you know what that means? Yeah, it means that the, my 20-year-old researcher told me to say it because all the kids will freak when I do. That's spin, mate. You guys are amateurs compared with Corbyn. <laughs> King of spin. Right, that down in your paper. <laughs> right, let's open up the floor to questions. How long have we got? Oh, got this is the bit. I oh, this will be fine. So just um, one, sentence, uh, one sentence questions and one sentence answers. Tim will come round. Yeah, with good luck with that one sentence answer. Uh, so I'm keen to get around as many as possible. So there's a chap down here at the front. We'll bring the microphone down to you, sir. Let us know your name and we'll... Hi, uh, Matthew. Um... Uh, you mentioned that Theresa May snog marry a void. Um, I just wanted to know, considering the pretty dim view of the Labour Party this evening, which Labour MP you're most likely to answer snog to? Fucking great question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my wife over there, and I'm just thinking, 
Oh, there's, look, there's lots of... Uh, <laughs> this is great. In a purely platonic way, Sue's purely platonic way, made that absolutely clear. Purely platonic way. Um, any of the really good-looking ones, actually, frankly. In a purely... Clive Lewis! In a manly way, not like that, in a manly way. But who are the good-looking ones? Oh, they're loads, they're loads. They're, uh, although there's a piece of research came out, I think, today. <laughs> a piece of research came out today that apparently Tories are better-looking than uh, the left. I think it was in the standard. Was it in the standard? <laughs> no, there are loads in there, in there, in there, in the, yeah, not not physically, emotionally beautiful people. <laughs> oh, fair point. Um, still sleeping. Fair point. Still, still sleeping in my own bed tonight. It was a good, it was a good effort. Um, right. Any more hands in the air for questions? Yes, the lady right at the back. That's a bloke. Oh, but it was a lady pointing. Sorry, that, no, a lady my, pointing, my yeah. wife putting uh, her hand up on my behalf. I think. Uh, How posh uh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my name's My name's Robert um, James. Um, I heard a rumor recently that you had a bit of bother a few years ago with the uh, uh, an incident with the Scottish police. One is this true, and two, <laughs> could you tell us about it? What's the <laughs> Oh no, 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 no! How do you? How does anyone know about this? <laughs> so this is a, quite a few years ago. I used to live up in. Um, so when I, I picked up the injury, I talked about the army. I went up to Scotland to find myself. And I lived up in a croft in the middle of nowhere, and the nearest pub was in a town called Ballater, and it was about a, a half an hour cycle ride. So I used to cycle into town, get completely blotto, and cycle back to the croft. Yeah. And then no lights, no street lights, and. Um, and I, you know, but it's very rural Scotland, so your chances of getting pulled over are pretty minimal. And yet, <laughs> and yet, I got pulled over by some Scottish coppers who uh, said, right, yeah, what are you doing? And I said, I was silent and burning my house. Thank you. <laughs> and um, A, that giveaway, I was drunk, and B, it gave away I was English. <laughs> and uh, they said, and I said, um, they said, not in that state, not in that state. No, that's not it. Anyway, they said, not in that state, mate. So he said, right, put the, a big estate car, so we put the bicycle in the back. I sat in the back seat, and they said, where are you, where are you going? I said, the water clock croft on Mor- Mount Morven. I mean, OK, we'll drive you back home. So he's driving me back home. And then the, it's rural Scotland, yeah. and suddenly a drunk English bloke on a bicycle is the most exciting thing that's happened. <laughs> and one of them goes, have you ever seen how fast these cars can go? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, and I went, nope. He went, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Put on the blues and twos and floored it. And I'm in the back going, <laughs> getting bounced around the back. And I don't know whether he was showing off, whether it was a standard punishment. And so after about half an hour whizzing around the Highlands of Scotland at 100 miles an hour, he took me back to the croft, took my bicycle, and I went, didn't he do that again? <laughs> Mate, genuinely know it. I've got no idea how that crept out. Wow, that is exceptional knowledge. Right, any more questions? Yes, over by the bar. Uh, so my name's Max, and uh, as the sapper, I always wanted to put a gun it's on the you. spot. It is me. Um, in your position now, uh, how are you going to make sure that our favourite man, Mr Corbyn, doesn't uh, make it to number 10 and become our new Prime Minister? Well, there is nothing new in politics. There is absolutely nothing new in politics and, and in political campaigning. And whilst, the, whilst the, the media that you use to communicate a message might have changed, and we've got digital media now and social media, as well as broadcast and radio and leaflets through letterboxes. 
the fundamentals remain the same. You, I, I think it is perfectly legitimate, indeed, I think you have an obligation, to highlight the fail, uh, frailties and failings of your opponent. And in the 2017 we, general election, we did a lot of that. What we didn't do as a counterbalance is to really explain and promote the positive ideas that we have. And you've got to do both. So good stories have light and dark. And in the 2017 general election, we focused very much on Corbyn's uh, uh, failings, of which, they, which there were, in my opinion, many, and they're serious. What we didn't really do was enthuse people. It goes back to that kind of grudging respect, but with the emphasis being on the grudging bit. Um, and I think what we, need to, what we do need to do, through, ever, through whatever media we use, we need to put forward a positive, exciting idea about how people are going to get good jobs, homes that they can live in, security for themselves and the family, all the things that humans through their whole history have always wanted. Um, and if we do that, I think we've got every reason to believe that we can win the next general election. Just on that, housing is something that, that people keep saying. William Hay came in and said, you know, yeah. housing is a big thing. Theresa May admitted, apparently, in, a, in an interview this week or last week, that, that we need to be making more of housing. Yeah. What is the big... Because housing... I mean, we're talking to a London audience here where house prices are so, oh, yeah, yeah. so excessive that they are just prohibitive in people's lifetimes. Yeah. What is the big bolt? It can't just be the odd cut in stamp duty. What is the big bolt Tory offer on housing? We've just got to build a load more houses. Sometimes there's two, two things. I'm ambivalent to who builds them. You just need to. And this is one of these things where if you start getting torn, if you start really ripping yourself, this is where they're going wrong in Harringay. This they're tying themselves up in. Should it be the state? Should it be this? Just build the bloody houses. And you do need to build a whole load more houses. But also one of the other things. That we need to do. Do you mind if I do a little experiment? A little, quick little experiment. So we're in the heart of London, right in the centre of London. How many people in this room, show of hands please, were born and brought up in London? Yeah, almost none of you. Oh my How God. many of you live in London? Bang, there you go. And the reason why is because economic activity is not properly distributed around the country. The reason London house prices are off the chart is because demand massively outstrips supply. And Economics 101 shows us that there will be a price correction, and that's why prices are through the roof. However, there are really fantastic parts of the country with lovely housing stock that could and should be lived in, but are not because the work isn't there, the good quality work isn't there. So yes, we need to build more houses where houses are needed, but we also need to distribute the economic activity around the uh, country because, again, for the benefit of the tape, was it less than one in ten people in this London audience who live and, I'm guessing, work in London, were born and brought up in London? And until we rebalance the relationship between London and the rest of the country, we are always going to have that problem. You're absolutely right about demand, but there are other problems as well, aren't there? You know, Mega-rich people buying up properties and investment, not even living in it. Yeah. How does the government tackle that? It's a, it, it is a problem, and it's definitely one that, that, that uh, will need to be tackled, but don't think that that is the problem. The proportion of empty properties in foreign ownership has remained remarkably stable since the 1970s. And the reason is because, and it's a byproduct of good news, Britain is a, uh, a safe haven. Uh, if you were born and brought up with your parents living under uh, the atrocities of communist China or communist Russia, 
or frankly communist anywhere else really, um, you have got a living memory of what happens when uh, the mass of poor people turn on the small number of wealthy people. They get killed, they get murdered, they get brutalised. Um, and, uh, and then they turn on the poor people and do the same to them. But um, London has always been a safe haven for foreign money. So if you're, a bit, if you're not sure about your own domestic government, you buy up London property, it's a nice safe piggy bank. So on the one hand, it's a reflection of the fact we're well-respected as an international community. It is a problem, and we will deal with it. But basically, even if we eradicated that, it would add a tiny percentage to the housing stock, and it ain't going to be the kind of housing stock that people that need homes are going to live in. Freeing up a couple of more penthouse flats in Mayfair ain't going to solve our housing problem. We've got to build, 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 and spread economy around the country. Uh, OK, one last question. It'd be good to have a... a, a, a it's all been men asking questions so far. Still in. I, when I do schools and no women put their hands up, I pick one at random. So, okay, go on then. I'm about to pick one. Unless someone volunteers, I'm about to pick one. Madam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've been getting it all night. This is your. Oh. Okay. <laughs> do, you t- do you think that Nick Timothy should shut up? <laughs> Great question. Yes. <laughs> I think um, so. I like talking. I'm quite good at it. I've practiced since I was a kid. But sometimes the best thing you can do in politics is shut the fuck up. And for the sake of the tape, I did a self edit there. Just sometimes you just need to shut up and get with a day job. And I think t- he's a really clever guy but he didn't do us any great favours at the general election, and a period of silent contemplation would be universal. (laughs) Uh, Just before we do go, you've been very open about the fact that you want to be Prime Minister, which is very rare for a lot of MPs to say. How soon would you like to realise that ambition? (laughs) So this is one of these situations where um, what I think is best for me personally and what I think is best for the country... Uh, converge beautifully. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, um, so when national interest and self-interest are in the same place. So, so I, I, genu- I think, I think it'd be the right thing for the country for uh, the prime minister to stay in place for a you know good long period of time to get Brexit delivered, uh, get the uh, economic growth embedded, and that kind of stuff. Um, and that would give a whole range of uh, people uh, some political time, some political experience, and all those people I'll be crawling over and stabbing in the back and kicking them <laughs> to try and get to... No, uh, genuinely, I mean, I, I, I joke about it, but I think the best... The, the idea of changing Prime Minister anytime soon is just the most catastrophically foolish notion um, that you could, you could possibly I- imagine. And frankly, the, the things that make life difficult for us politically at the moment... So, you know, having a minority government, the fact we have to uh, negotiate Brexit, which is going to be tough, uh, the fact the uh, economy is getting better but it's still fragile, the fact that the international political order is totally unpredictable, a change of leadership ain't going to sort out any of those things, but what it will do was delay Brexit and cause disharmony and fighting within the Conservative Party uh, and almost certainly require another general election, which nobody... Nobody fancies any time soon, including two-thirds of the Parliamentary Labour Party. So I think the best thing we can do, stick with the boss, 
she is the right person. And, uh, and as I say, maybe at some point in the future, if people who I know and respect call upon me... <laughs> it was sort of late 2018. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After summer. Oh, there was one more question I was going to ask. I can't believe I forgot this. I used to do material about this. She went on um, Penal's Politics years ago as backbencher of the week. It can't yeah. been that long ago. And he asked you two questions which you said yes to. Have you ever watched porn and have you ever done drugs? And you said yes. So what drugs and what sort of porn? <laughs> I've just lost a bet. Because <laughs> I thought I was going to get through the whole of this evening without you bringing... So my association chairman went to watch your show off on, on Edinburgh Fringe. And he texted me saying, oh, James, you've got a mention at the Edinburgh Fringe. I went, oh, brilliant. He went, mm, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the drugs one is easy. Drugs one's what I said. I, you know, I, I tried a little bit of dope um, at university, but I was you know, never really big into it. I was a rugby player, so I preferred to drink beer as my medication of choice. Yeah. And uh, in terms of pornography, I was thinking about this, whether I should just say, well, I'll fess up to it just after you do, but I know you, you probably will. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... Pierced, tattooed goats, dressed as, <laughs> yeah, dressed as alien <laughs> schoolgirls. You know, vanilla. vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing we've had in common all night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a coincidence. Uh, James, if you do become Prime Minister, would you come back and no, do us an experience? No. Oh, come on. <laughs> Oh, no, you will have served your purpose. <laughs> oh. Oh. oh, don't say that! Oh. Man, I'd love to, but then I'd have this army of protective spin doctors going, I, I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> yeah, he's not me, he's been good to me. No, I wouldn't advise it. So, uh, but, yeah, genuinely, no. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's been a very special night, James. Thank you very much. Uh, before we go, next month is Ed Miliband. Uh, talking of people I've taken the piss out of at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, March is Angela Rayner uh, the guest for the rest of the year um, to be uh, confirmed I think they're actually awesome. they've released some standing tickets for Edinburgh Band today so there might be a handful of those left uh, and for some of the shows later in the year ladies and gentlemen as always uh, please thank the bar staff and all the people who work at the venue for their wonderful uh, help and all the people at Avalon I'll be back in a month but for now one of the best nights we've had here and I know I say that every week. <laughs> but I really mean it. Please give it up for the wonderful James Cleverley. There you go. James Cleverley, one of the best guests we've had. And the hour flew. I think that was the fastest one that I've experienced in a very long time. And he's, I just think he's really onto something in terms of personality, in terms of policy, and in terms of tone. And he does feel like the next generation of conservative politician, really. Um, Perhaps their next leader. Who knows when Theresa May will go, who will succeed her. But as it always is the case, or always has been in my lifetime with the Tories, the favourite never wins. So maybe someone like Cleverly, whether he stands this time, who knows. But he's certainly ambitious. And it's refreshing to hear MPs admit that they want to be Prime Minister because the vast majority of them, at some point, um, almost certainly will hold that ambition. Well, the great things about setting up an email for this show... Uh, is all the wonderful messages. And thank you for, for the people who email um, with suggestions and with just with messages of support, really. It's just nice to hear from people who like the show. It's also fascinating to hear where people listen to it. Uh, Matt Scolle is a, an Australian who for a while listened to it in France. And Matthew Woodward 
uh, said, just a second, the Medellin-based rooftop listener in Colombia, I listened to the podcast from my apartment block roof, looking over the dusty, sun-drenched city of Cadoba in distant Argentina. Hello to you, Matthew. Angus Robertson and the Burko have been my faves so far. Let me know where you listen to the podcast. I always like listening to shows, um, other podcasts, on, uh, while, I'm, while I'm cooking. I'm always fascinated as to where people listen. So drop me an email, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, on where you listen. And also, I know a lot of politicians listen to the show, a lot of political advisors, uh, a lot of special advisors and, and political people. If you would like to come on the show, if you would recommend politicians to come on, obviously with the weekly show now, I can take people that aren't just politicians, but advisors, former advisors, people who work for think tanks. If you know someone interested in politics, and it might be you, do get in touch. I've had plenty of politicians over the years get in touch and ask to come on. Um, so do email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You might not know them. It might be someone that you heard on the Today programme or that you saw on the news that you think actually they would be great for the show. And it can be, you know, uh, interpret that in a broad sphere, the broadest sphere possible of what you think politics is and people that you think would be good for it. Thank you for all your wonderful messages of support. If you do want to help the podcast, and I hope you do, please do leave it a review on iTunes. I'm so late to realising how to make podcasts available to the biggest possible audience. Leaving reviews on iTunes and subscribing really helps it. So if you enjoy the show, please do do that and also share it online. I'll be back next week with uh, a guest that I'm very excited about but can't reveal yet uh, on the political party. I'll see you next time. Oh, and I should just say... The shows now, the live shows are sold out until, until January. Um, but the other palace have released a handful of standing tickets for all of the shows for the rest of the year. So I think there's about three tickets left for each show, including the next one with Ed Miliband. So if you go to the other palace website, theotherpalace.co.uk, um, you can snap those up. But always, thank you for listening. A big thank you to James Cleverly for being such a great guest Uh, And who knows, we may have just spent an hour in the company of a future world leader. See you next week.